You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 121, Ezekiel chapters 12 and 13. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how are you? It was a pretty incredible week, weekend. Yeah, it was It was a great weekend. You know, we had our our sort of uh, Miklot reference group, you know, all met together. It was great. I'm, I'm really glad we did it. Yeah, it was fun to get to meet a lot of people, and it was nice to be around people, like-minded people that were all on the same page and, and meet new friends, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it was good to get FaceTime, you know, for sure. And I, I, I personally think it was pretty productive. Not much, not, I mean, it was fun, but it wasn't just fun. We, we actually got things accomplished. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to do uh, two chapters, again, Ezekiel 12 and 13, uh, trying uh, as quickly as possible to get to chapter 16. <laughs> That's the one with all the, uh, all the all the sexual content in it that you know we've alluded to before. Again, Ezekiel being sort of infamous for very earthy language. So we're we're hurtling toward that tray. I know you can't wait, you know, to to get to chapter sixteen. Well, I asked Mike if we needed some special seventies music for that episode, <laughs> but he he shot that down. So I guess yeah. that's not going to happen. Yeah, that that went down in flames. So. If you think that was a good idea, or you're, you're that, that's ringing a bell with you, get used to disappointment. It's not going to happen. <laughs> All right, twelve and thirteen here. Now this is we're actually starting a new section. If you remember, way, way, way back at the beginning of Ezekiel, we talked about how the book broke down in sections, and a lot of commentators will have one of those sections be chapters twelve through twenty-four. So here we are in chapter twelve, and I want to read a little excerpt from uh, Taylor's. Uh, short uh, Tyndale Old Testament commentary on Ezekiel. He kind of summarizes the the section here. I think it, it'll be a good uh, framework for us. So he writes, the argument of the book so far has consisted mainly of the iteration of Ezekiel's message that Jerusalem is doomed. He has demonstrated this by symbolic action, in vision, and by spoken oracle. He has given adequate justification for such a fate by describing the iniquities, religious and moral, which have brought it on. Now a new series of actions and oracles attempts to deal with objections that people raise to this horrifying prospect. The section could, in today's idiom, be entitled, quote, objections to judgment, unquote, as long as it is understood that the objections were raised only to be demolished. They are the objections of those who say, we've heard all these threats before, but nothing has ever come of them, or of the false prophets who claim equal authority for oracles which promised peace and safety, or of those who think that it is impossible for the Lord to cast away his people. They must be delivered, either for the sake of the righteous of the few, or on the ground of God's covenant mercies in time past." However, before Ezekiel deals with all these varying viewpoints, the prophet has some more symbolical acts to perform. So that's the end of Taylor's summary. And we're going to see all those elements, really, in in, in these two chapters, this whole, you know, these objection scenarios, you know, Ezekiel having to respond to them, of course, God anticipating them, basically, and then having, giving Ezekiel the response. But we're also going to get some more symbolic acts mixed mixed in here. 
So when it comes to chapter 12, that breaks down into two more sign acts. Again, two more uh, symbolic actions, illustrative actions that Ezekiel is going to be asked to do that are going to, again, vividly display something. We've seen a bunch of these already, but we're going to get two here. The first seven verses, we're going to get the sign act described, and then we're going to get it explained in verses 8 through 16. And then the second sign act will pick up in verse 17. So let's let's just start here right in the, in the first verse. I'll read the first uh, seven verses here. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see, but see not, who have ears to hear, but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. As for you, son of man, prepare for yourself an exile's baggage, and go into exile by day in their sight. You shall go like an exile from your place to another place in their sight. Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house." You shall bring out your baggage by day in their sight as baggage for exile, and you shall go out yourself at evening in their sight as those who do, as those do who must go into exile. In their sight, dig through the wall and bring your baggage out through it. In their sight, you shall lift the baggage upon your shoulder and carry it out at dusk. You shall cover your face that you may not see the land, for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel." And I did as I was commanded. I brought out my baggage by day as baggage for exile. And in the evening, I dug through the wall with my own hands. I brought out my baggage at dusk, carrying it on my shoulder in their sight. So those are the first seven verses. Again, the sign act is pretty self-explanatory. There are a few things I want to say about it. Uh, But, you know, in essence, during the daytime, Ezekiel is supposed to gather the bare essentials what he's going to need or what, a, what an exile would need for a long journey into exile. And then by night, you know, after that stuff's been gathered, you know, packed away, by night he's supposed to dig through the wall of his house to mime or, again, act out a, a, a getaway, you know, carrying his belongings with him. Now, there, there are a couple things to say here. That the main point is that the sign act – is supposed to be performed in full view of Ezekiel's countrymen, his fellow exiles there in Babylon. Uh, Just like, you know, some of the other things he did uh, were carried out in full view, Uh, like living, you know, sort of living life, lying on the ground, you know, with his hands tied. And, you know, that was chapter four. Chapter four, we also had uh, eating, the exiles' rations, that sort of thing. He's supposed to be doing this so that everyone can see and hopefully – you know, get the message. So, and again, that, that I think that's generally clear. But let's just comment on a few things as we go here. In verse three, uh, one of the things that might grab someone's attention is, you know, God telling Ezekiel, "I want you to do, you know, do this. You know, go like an exile from your place to another place. You know, get the baggage and all that." And then he says, "Perhaps they will understand, though they are a rebellious house." And that might cause someone to, to ask, well, well, doesn't God know the outcome? You know, like, is this some sort of indication that God doesn't, you know, foreknow the future or something like that? Doesn't he know the outcome? Well, he does. And, and you know, we've, we've seen up to this point in the same book, in Ezekiel, where God knows quite well, you know, how this is going to play out. He's telling Ezekiel to tell the people how this is going to play out. So, 
you know, he, he does know the outcome, so that isn't the point of the language. So, you know, what, what might this mean? Well, I think, and again, this isn't just me. This is a pretty standard uh, way of approaching it. The wording here is meant to convey God's desire, not his uncertainty about what will happen. God has already said, A, the exile is certain, and B, there is going to be a remnant. So God knows both of those things. He's not looking for information here. And frankly, the readers know both of those things. So the wording here, again, you know, perhaps they'll they'll understand. It, it reflects God's desire, again, his, his, his heart, that he wishes people would turn around. He wishes this were the case. It's not that he doesn't know uh, that most of them won't and only a handful will. He does know that already because he's telegraphed that through a whole series of sign acts for Ezekiel and oracles and whatnot. So I don't think we need to get you know hung up on the language here. There, there is a way to look at it that's quite consistent with what Ezekiel has already said and what we've already you know covered. So again, the, the, the sign act is not very hard to understand. The part about digging through the wall at night, um, it, it's worth commenting that the word here for wall is is kir and not uh, koma, which is uh, the, the difference between them is Koma is typically used like a, of a city wall or something like that. Here uh, is often used to refer to the wall of a dwelling, you know, a smaller, smaller structure. So, I mean, Ezekiel basically has to tunnel through the wall in his house. Uh, and again, typically it's going to be made up of, you know, clay, dry, dried bricks. Um, I point it out because it's not a trivial task. This would have taken him a little while. And it would have been, again, a... a, a Something that he does, again, in, in full view of everyone, that would have denoted desperation. Why don't you just use the door? Well, because, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded. Or, you know, you, you create this, this set of circumstances where normal activity isn't going to work. Normal, you know, escape isn't going to work. You know, we have to go, again, through the wall because, A, you know, we have to do this. We have to exit the building where people aren't expecting us to exit the building. Again, it just conveys this sense of, of urgency and, and the situation that the people are supposed to be watching this and thinking, wow, that, that, boy, that, that's what's going to happen. You know, people back in Jerusalem, they're going to be in this situation where they have to do this. They got to try to get away unseen uh, because of the threat. So that's just a point of interest. I think the vision itself, not the vision, but the sign act that he's, he's told to do is pretty, pretty self-explanatory. Now, we get into the explanation and we get a few interesting things here. So in verses 8 through 16, we read this. In the morning, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, has not the house of Israel, the rebellious house, said to you, what are you doing? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, this oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and all the house of Israel who are in it. Say, I am a sign for you. As I have done, so shall it be done to them. They shall go into exile, into captivity. And the prince who is among them shall lift his baggage upon his shoulder at dusk and shall go out. They shall dig through the wall to bring him out through it. He shall cover his face that they may not that he may not see the land with his eyes. And I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. Yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. And I will scatter toward every wind all who are around him, his helpers and all his troops. And I will unsheath the sword after them. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I disperse them among the nations and scatter them among the countries. 
But I will let a few of them escape from the sword, from famine and pestilence, that they may declare all their abominations among the nations where they go and may know that I am the Lord. So that was verses 8 through 16. A few comments here. The, the, what God told him to do in the first seven verses, again, you know, get, get your stuff together, baggage like an exile, and at the, in the evening dig through your wall and then escape. Verse 8 says that, that it was explained to Ezekiel in the morning. So apparently, Ezekiel didn't quite know what it all meant either, at least on, on the surface, you know, when, when it was originally you know, given to him. And the one detail that's sort of revelatory, not sort of, but is revelatory, is this, this focus on the prince. Now, most scholars, again, and I, I would be among this group, I think this makes sense, feel that the prince is Zedekiah and that this whole description is a reference to what happened to King Zedekiah at the end you know, of, of, of the history of Judah, at the end of Judah's existence when Nebuchadnezzar takes the city. The prince language, interestingly enough, is used by Ezekiel later on elsewhere to refer to the Davidic uh, descendant. For, for instance, in Ezekiel 37.25, we read, They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. So Ezekiel 37 is, you know, that, that's the chapter where the vision of the dry bones is at. And so this is this is a perspective about again the nation being, you know, resurrected, you know, being made alive again, brought back to the land, so on and so forth. And here we have David, my servant. Again, this is Ezekiel, so it's not King David, but it's it's a reference to the Davidic king, the Davidic descendant, is called a prince. It's the same word that, that's used here in Ezekiel chapter twelve. So it's it's a reference to the the person who's in David's line. And again, if you actually look at the circumstances, this is the sort of thing that happened to Zedekiah. Taylor, I think, has a nice summary of this. He says, Ezekiel's actions were prophetic of what was to happen to King Zedekiah, the prince in Jerusalem. Verse 10, he would flee the city unceremoniously at the dead of night. The phrase, he shall cover his face, verse 12, may refer to his being disguised in which case Ezekiel would probably have worn some head covering to represent that. Or it may be a forward look to his being blinded by his captors at Riblah. Remember, Zedekiah was, was blinded. This is referred to clearly in verse 13, quote, yet he shall not see it. Again, the, the, specifically the, the land. I'll just read the verse. I will bring him to Babylon, this, this prince the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, and he shall die there. So that's very, that very clearly is something that happened to Zedekiah. Uh, so Taylor continues, again, it, it, again, probably refers to his blinding at Riblah, which could have been represented by the prophet either by a blindfold or by holding his hand over his eyes. Again, and there's, there's a little bit of variability as to how the description that God gives Ezekiel as to what he's supposed to do at night might have been carried out or what it might signify. Taylor writes, the Septuagint follows the former interpretation by rendering verse 12, quote, he shall cover his face so that he may not be seen. So the Septuagint translator thought that this was referring to a disguise, but Taylor, again, and, and other commentators are, tend to opt for a reference to Zedekiah. And again, I think that makes sense. Again, because of the prince language, because you know, they shall not see it, you know, that sort of thing seems to be speaking of the king. So this would be a prophecy 
I mean, it, it's all a prophecy. The Synacs, of course, are prophecies. But it's this this one gets really specific. It's not just what's going to happen to the people in Jerusalem, but specifically what's going to happen to the prince, okay, the, the guy in charge at the time when, the, when all this comes down. Another note uh, that I think is interesting, verse 13, I will spread my net over him, God says, and he shall be taken in my snare. So basically the king is going to try to get away, which historically turned out to be Zedekiah. And God says, it ain't going to work. I will spread my net over him. He shall be taken in my snare. And this points to the fact that the Babylonian invasion and the capture of the Davidic king is under God's control. I mean, and again, this isn't revelatory for us, you know, as listeners here. We, you know, we've, God, God's the one giving all this information. But this is another passage that points to the fact that, yeah, when bad things happen, you can't assume, again, that God is isn't in control. He is. It's not like badness is just happening and God is up in heaven scrambling, oh, what do I do? You know, boy, I didn't expect this. You know, this is getting out of hand here. Got to get this under control. It's always under control. Again, this is an example of God judging apostasy, judging idolatry, judging evil. And God gets to do that because he's God. And the circumstances, again, are not out of his control. He knows why he's doing it, and he knows what's going to extend from it as well. So again, we get this point of theology, I think, if we're reading carefully, just in that little verse right there. Now, the second sign act in Ezekiel 12, you got the first one, you know, get the baggage together, dig through the, the, the wall of your house or your hut or whatever you know, Ezekiel was living in. You know, I think house is probably a better term. At night, make your escape, so on and so forth. Do this in front of, of everybody's eyes day and night. Second sign act refers to, really sort of tries to illustrate the terror of the people in Jerusalem. So we read this. This is Ezekiel twelve seventeen through 20. And the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, eat your bread with quaking and drink water with trembling and with anxiety. And say to the people of the land, thus says the Lord God concerning the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the land of Israel, they shall eat their bread with anxiety and drink water in dismay. In this way, her land will be stripped of all it contains on account of the violence of those who dwell in it, and the inhabited cities shall be laid waste, and the land shall become a desolation, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So again, this is pretty clear. You know, Ezekiel is told to get something to eat, something to drink, and sit there and consume it in fear. You know, shake, quake, tremble. Do it with anxiety, like, like you're in a panic while you're doing it. And again, that's to illustrate this is what it's going to be like in Jerusalem when all this goes down. And again, we've already had the, the you know, <laughs> having what he does eat and drink trimmed to exilic ration proportions. We've already had in, in, in past chapters references to, again, the land breaking out uh, in pestilence, water supply being cut off. This is the sort of thing that happens when a city is under siege. You know, we, we Just take your mind back to siege warfare. This is the classic way of, of taking a city in the ancient Near East. You go you, you, you go to the city with your army, you surround it, and we've had all this already in in in, in pr previous episodes with what's going to happen to the city. Remember when Ezekiel's supposed to sketch out the city, and then 
array uh, instruments of warfare around it, and you know, to, again to portray visually portray siege warfare. This is what's going to happen. This is and this is what happens when a city is under siege. It's not, you know, a, a quick constant battle. Typically, you surround the city, you burn the fields, okay, outside the city, you burn the crops, you cut off the water supply. If there's a water uh, water, you know, supply of river, stream, whatever flowing into the city, you, you build a dam, you stop it, cuts off the water supply in the city. So not only is there less to drink and it's going to run out, but also, you know, any, any washing again, that would have happened again. This is, you know, they're, they're not going to be sensitive to germs, you know, that germ science and all that stuff. But sanitation is a huge problem because what, you know, what was typically done? Yeah, they, they would, they would wash some things down. Okay. They, they did that, but they would also remove, the excrement, okay, outside the city. You'd gather it and you'd remove it. You'd take it out. Well, they can't do that if the city's surrounded. I mean, nobody waves a white flag or, you know, puts the tea like time out, you know, here so we can carry the poop out of the city. And no, that's not happening. This is why in siege warfare that goes on for weeks and for months, disease becomes a real issue. Pestilence, rats, you know, vermin, okay, it becomes a real issue. People die and you can't dispose of their corpses. Siege warfare was an awful thing. I mean, you were, if you were surrounded, I mean, look, look how limited your options are. You, you can either surrender, you can basically resort to, to eating the dead, you know, cannibalism. And, and there are passages in the Old Testament that describe that happening uh, in both you know the, the the northern kingdom circumstance and the southern kingdom i mean that it, it gets really bad so you, you you have that going you know going on you you can try to wait it out or something or you can try to fight it out just sort of a suicide kind of mission you know that that sort of thing you you break out and you you either win the battle or you, or you get what's coming to you but it's a quick death you know that sort of thing this was not something you'd ever want to have happen you know, to your city. And so Ezekiel, again, through another sign act, it's like, here we go again. This is what it's going to be like. This is what, it's, what, what, what is awaiting Jerusalem. And it, naturally, people are just going to be frightened out of their minds if an army surrounds their city because they understand what this could generate in terms of the hardship and, and the awfulness of it. Now, chapter 12 wraps up with you know, if you remember Taylor's summary of a few minutes ago, how part of 12 and 13 is dealing with objections. So chapter 12 gets into this ob- ob- objection kind of uh, scenario, this objection thinking. So it wraps up with divine correction of popular thinking or false prophecy that the people had been hearing to basically try to deny or rebut or refute, ignore, you know, what Ezekiel has been saying. Basically, it addresses contrarian preaching. And it's not all just sort of imagining or seeing what's happening back in Jerusalem. Some of it, as we're going to see, is, is right on Ezekiel's doorstep, you know, with, with the people, you know, with him in exile. Uh, so that it's not just the people back in Jerusalem that are saying things like, oh, this is never going to happen, you know, you know we're, we're God's chosen, all this kind of stuff. We've had that up to this point. In Ezekiel, where the emphasis has been in previous episodes, previous chapters, this kind of mentality, this inviolability of Zion, if you remember, we talked about that in an earlier episode, that, that this is God's home, it's his house, God's not going to let it be destroyed. We're his people, we're his family, we're his seed. He's not going to destroy us. You know, 
we've, we've had exile, but it's over. You know, too bad for the people that got taken away, but we're still here. We'll be okay. And we're, we're dealing with some of that again, but as we're going to see, Ezekiel has some of it right on his own doorstep. So in chapter 21, or in verse 21 here in chapter 12, this is how the, the chapter ends. It says, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, what is this proverb that you have about the land of Israel saying, the days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. Tell them, therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will put an end to this proverb and they shall no more use it as a proverb in Israel, but say to them, the days are near and the fulfillment of every vision For there shall be no more any false vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it, declares the Lord God. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, behold, they of the house of Israel say, The vision that he sees is for many days from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord God, none of my words will be delayed any longer, but the word that I speak will be performed, declares the Lord God. So that's the end of the chapter, verses 21 through 28. And again, it's, it's very transparent. You know what's going on here. In fact, it's it's kind of preparatory to what's going to happen in chapter thirteen. Um, so we might as well just just go into that, and we can take the end of chapter twelve here with with what we see in chapter thirteen as we discuss, you know, the the, the next you know the next sort of topic item in these two chapters because they blend together. So chapter thirteen, right after you know we read that, we read this: the word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are prophesying, and say to those who prophesy from their own hearts, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Your prophets have been like jackals among ruins, O Israel. You have not gone up into the breaches or built a wall for the house of Israel that it might stand in battle in the day of the Lord. They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect him to fulfill their word. Have you not seen a false vision and uttered a lying divination whenever you have said, declares the Lord, although I have not spoken? Again, that's the first seven verses of chapter 13. So thematically, it's the same thing. God's sort of going off on the people that say, you know, go back to verse 12. Oh, uh, you know, here, you know, the, the, a proverbial saying, I mean, a proverbial say, saying means that the people, and of course, Ezekiel had been hearing this over and over and over again. The days grow long and every vision comes to nothing. You know, nothing's going to happen. There shall be no more false, you know, it, it, this sort of thing. It, it you know, they they just heard this over and over again. Is you could go out and say something or do something, and it's like, ah, oh, it's not going to happen. Just not going to happen. Or, you know, thus says the Lord, we'll tell you what's going to happen. You know, God is speaking to us. We'll tell you what's going to happen. And God more or less says, enough of that. You're talking about how it hasn't happened. It's going to happen in your days. Okay, basically in your time frame. The very people who are hearing this now, 
you know, you can be assured that this is what's going to take place, not just in your lifetime, but imminently. So enough of this, you know, this buffoonery, you know, trying to, to say, well, you know, we, we really know what's going to happen and Ezekiel doesn't. So if you look at, again, look, look at what he says in 13, some of the phrases, these, these proverbs, these prophecies that are contradictory to what Ezekiel is communicating are, quote, from their own hearts, from their own minds. Verse 3, they follow their own spirit. In other words, what they're telling the people, contrary to what Ezekiel is saying, has a private origin. It, it comes from them. It doesn't come from God. And this is characterized as foolish. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit. The word foolish here is naval. We're used to, to thinking of that from the, the story of Nabal and uh, Abigail and David. Uh, naval refers to more than just stupidity. The fool, the naval, ha-naval, in the Hebrew Bible isn't just stupid. It refers to sort of a spiritual and moral dullness or insensitivity. Uh, the fool was, was inclined to blasphemy. Uh, the fool would deny uh, that either there, there was a God, like in Psalm, Psalm 14.1, or it would be a reference to that God is going to act, that God has any interest in this. There might be a God, but he's just sort of asleep or doesn't do anything. Again, this is, this is the fool. He's arrogant, full of himself, just spiritually, again, I want to say stupid, but just, you know, spiritually um, inept might be a better word. And, and even going further than that, just spiritually stubborn or recalcitrant, just doesn't want to hear it. Doesn't want to hear the, the words of Ezekiel or any of you know, any of, the, of God's prophets, but is more interested in the words that come out of his own mouth. That is the fool. And so God says, this is what you're dealing with. This is what you're dealing with. And these, these fools, quote, verse 3 again, they have seen nothing. They have seen nothing. Now, this takes me back anyway, and maybe Unseen Realm readers back to the, uh, the, the chapter in Unseen Realm uh, about standing in the council. Again, the test of a true prophet was, have you had a direct encounter with Yahweh? Um, you know, and, and then, of course, the evidence of that is what you say actually comes to pass. You, know, you, you, have, you have the track record to prove this, that sort of thing. And, and this reference to have seen nothing you know, really refers to, they haven't seen me. They haven't encountered me. I haven't come to them. I haven't brought them into, into my council. I haven't called them. Now, it's interesting that the text still calls them prophets because that's what they're, they're, you know, prophesying is basically preaching. And I've made this comment before. We have a misconception of prophecy because of our, of all the, the, the end times interest and hubbub, really the end times obsession. Uh, we tend to think that prophecy in the Old Testament, or really, really anywhere in the Bible, refers to predicting the future. Very rarely it did that. I mean, it certainly does do that, but that's the minority. Most of the time, it's a preacher. It's someone who is, you know, supposedly speaking for God, uh, that that sort of thing. So what what he he's saying is, okay, you're you're out there running around. These guys are running around, claiming to speak for God and speaking as though they do speak for God, but they have seen nothing. I have not called them. And as proof of that, he you know you get verse four, this this, this phrase about your prophets have been like jackals among the ruins. 
you know, they haven't gone up into the breaches or built a wall for the house of Israel. That, that's, that's, again, an idiomatic way, again, in, in, in Hebrew, in the case of the Hebrew Bible. That's an idiomatic way of saying that these people who, who claim to be prophets, claim to be speaking for, for the God of Israel, have no real concern for the people among whom they live. You know, they're digging around, burrowing around the foundations, you know, like, you know, little foxes or little jackals, you know, trying to hide themselves, trying to, to get security for their own butts. They're not taking risks for the people. They're not telling the people what they need to hear. If they had done that five, 10, you know, 15 years ago, whatever it was, you know, that, that they needed to repent, that, that the reason that this was happening and had happened, you know, the, the first couple waves of, of exile, the reason that all this had befallen them was because of their idolatry. They're not doing that. Instead, they're preaching false security and looking to protect themselves. They're looking for a place to hide instead of fulfilling their moral responsibility of telling people the hard truth. Okay. In, in the past, you needed to repent. Perhaps God will relent. In the present, you need to repent because maybe you'll be spared and be part of the remnant. They're not saying any of that. They are, again, just being false. They're telling people things that aren't true. And it's just self-interest. That is not what a prophet of God does. So that, that again, that's why these thoughts are, 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 are mixed here. You know, that we have this you know, concatenation of, of thoughts in, the, in these phrases. In verse 7, what they say is referred to as lying divination. The word here for divination is miksam. And, and that term, and if any of you have read my, uh, my paper on uh, the Old Testament response to pagan divination, uh, where I discuss a lot of these terms, um, I'll, just, I'll just quote a little bit from that. Miksam is really a term that kind of casts a broad net uh, for, for different practices that in you know, Old Testament context were prohibited. Uh, refers to an attempt to elicit information from a deity, just generally, or some supernatural source through reading, you know, something, you know, like entrails or the liver or whatever, you know, the different ancient Near Eastern stuff they would do, or interpreting natural events or natural resources to, as as meaning something. Uh, it's very broad. One of the more common practices that that you know, would fall under mixam divination would be casting lots. That sort of thing. So we're not told specifically which one of those things that these prophets, these false prophets were doing, but you know, God is aware. And basically, he just says here you know, through Ezekiel, they've seen false visions. I don't care what they've claimed to have seen. It's bogus. And they've given lying divinations. They've done this, that, or the other thing and, and, and claimed that it means this or that. And God is saying, enough of this. Okay, This is a lie. All this is a lie. These are not my prophets. They have seen nothing at all. Now, when we get beyond verse 7 in, in Ezekiel 13, we get to verse eight, verses 8 through 16. We sort of get a general denunciation of you know, all of this. Again, it, there's, it's a bit of repetition here. But in chapter 13, verses 8 through 16, we just may basically get a diatribe from God denouncing the, the practice of preaching false security, of, of, of trying to encourage people you know, who need to repent of their idolatry. I'll, I'll read you a little bit of it because we, he, they, uh, Ezekiel uses the metaphor of, of w the wall and whitewashing the wall. It says here, verse 8, 
Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have uttered falsehood and seen lying visions. And that's an interesting phrase. Okay, he doesn't deny they had a vision. He just said it was a lie. Um, so again, it's either something self-willed. Again, when I read stuff like this, I think of, I think of a lot of the nonsense that goes on today, either within the church or outside the church in pagan religions or new age kind of stuff where people have experiences and, and they can be self-induced or induced from another intelligence, another supernatural intelligence. So the, yeah, they had an experience, but it's a lie. So God says, because you've uttered falsehood and seen lying visions, therefore behold, I'm against you declares the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who see false visions and who give lying divinations. They shall not be in the council of my people, nor be enrolled in the register of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord God. Well, if they're not going to enter the land, that tells you right away they're not going to be in the remnant because the remnant's going to be brought back. Again, Ezekiel has talked about that too, little, little places here and there. Why? Verse 10, precisely because they've misled my people, saying peace when there is no peace. And because when the people build a wall, these prophets smear it with whitewash and say to those who smear it with whitewash that it shall fall. Again, basically when they're encouraging people to do this or that to protect themselves. And then again, it, it, it's, all, it's all a mirage. Okay? It, n- none of it is going to matter is, is basically the point of, of the idioms that, you, that we see here. So we get Verses 8 through 16 are just, you know, one court sort of slap in the face after another toward these false prophets. And then we get to verse 17 where there's something interesting. Uh, Ezekiel said, or, you know, God says to uh, Ezekiel in verse 17, chapter 13, And you, son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own hearts. Prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, woe to the women who sew magic bands upon all wrists and make veils for the heads of persons of every stature in the hunt for souls. Will you hunt down souls belonging to my people and keep your own souls alive? You have profaned me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, putting to death souls who should not die and keeping alive souls who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against your magic bands with which you hunt the souls like birds, and I will tear them from your arms. I will let the souls whom you hunt go free and the, soul, the, the souls like birds. Your veils also will I tear off and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall be no more in your hand as prey, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Because you have disheartened the righteous falsely, although I have not grieved him. And you have encouraged the wicked that he should not turn from his evil way to save his own life. Therefore, you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand. You shall know that I am the Lord. Basically, you're not going to see anymore because you're going to be dead. Okay, you're, 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 you're not part of the remnant. You are going to perish. Now, this, this section, 17 through 23, and that's the rest of chapter 13, is interesting because it's one of the handful of passages in the Old Testament that, you know, focus on female prophets, you know, prophetesses, that idea. Uh, Taylor says, just, just a little section, a little statement he has here, there are only a handful of passages in the Old Testament which are critical of a class of women. And this section keeps company with Isaiah 3, 16 through 4, 1, and Isaiah 32, 9 through 13, and Amos 4, 1 through 3. 
The only female prophets that are known to us are women like Deborah, Judges 4, and Huldah, 2 Kings 22.14. Though Moses' sister Miriam merited the title, there's a reference in Exodus 15.20, again, to that, to her. And Nehemiah refers to the prophetess Noadiah among his intimidators, Nehemiah 6.14. So there aren't many of these. Taylor says, while recognizing, therefore, that prophecy was open to women as well as to men, there do not appear to have been many such women, and it is probably a mistake to think of it as a class or order of prophetesses. Um, that's the end of his quote. So in other words, un- unlike the men, there was school of the prophets. That probably wasn't the case with the women, but you do have women prophetesses. Again, this is not something that's going to be revelatory in our, in our context, but this is one of the few places where you get this. And in this case, that while those other references, at least some of them, some of them were positive. There were a couple negative ones, like the one in Nehemiah. Uh, this one is really negative. And, and if you read, and we did from verses 18 onward, you get the feeling that we're not sort of dealing with kind of normal female prophets, but something that would sort of go under the, under the category, get filed in the drawer of witchcraft. Because, again, of, of the way it's described, sew magic bands upon the wrists, make veils for the heads of persons of every stature. And it's very clear, again, that they're, they're entrapping the righteous. They're, they're doing something to deceive the righteous that you know, in, into buying the message or maybe staying in this city or, or whatever. They don't need to repent. You know, if God's calling them righteous, you know, these, these, are the, these are the good people. But they're not – they're being convinced not to do – practical things, again, that could result in, in saving their own lives. And, and the reverse is true. The, the wicked, again, are the ones that are you know, sort of being benefited here in some way. You know, we don't really know. Uh, you have the reference to handfuls of barley, pieces of bread, so on and so forth. Maybe they're doing this for, for payment or they're taking stuff you know, from the righteous and then the, the wicked are benefiting from it. We don't know the exact circumstances here, but it isn't good. Uh, it, it's calling evil good and good evil, uh, essentially. Now, Block has a uh, a quotation here I think is worth reading that you know sheds a little bit of light on this again it's it's not completely clear by any means but he has a few interesting things to say here he says it's impossible to arrive at a clear understanding of the women's methods because of the obscurity of the expressions used nevertheless two specific activities appear to be involved first they are sewing something for people's arms uh, the terminology here, uh, kesatot, and kisatot appears only here and in verse 20. Its meaning is uncertain. One's first impulse is to associate the term with the verb kasa, which means to cover, although the Septuagint translates the language here as proskephaliah, which is the word for pillows. And that goes in a completely different direction. Since some form of magical power is involved here, it seems best to associate the terminology with the noun keset, with the, and, and that is built off the Akkadian verb kasu, which means to bind, and the noun kasitu, which is binding magic in Akkadian, the reference being to magical bands worn on the wrists or arms by the women. However, some argue that these bands were also put on the wrists of their victims so these women could maintain control over them by some means of sympathetic magic or cursing or hexing or that sort of thing. So Block continues. Second, the meaning of hamis pahot 
is equally uncertain. Again, this, this reference to the coverings here over the heads. And renderings vary. Greenberg translates it rags. Another source translates it bonnet, mantle, so on and so forth. Most common is veils. And he lists a bunch of translations, English translations that opt for that. The last interpretation is based upon an alleged association with Akkadian sapahu, to loosen or scatter. However, the derivation of mispachot may be much nearer home in the Hebrew root sapach, which means to join or attach. Not only does this root suggest a better parallel with the bands around the wrists, it is also more easily associated with magical appurtenances, specifically amulets tied to a string and worn like a phylactery on the forehead or more likely brought over the head and worn around the neck. Then again, what it, whatever the nature of both of these blocks says, they appear to have been instruments of black magic and their wielders may justifiably be designated sorceresses, evil magicians or witches. Again, that's the end of Block's quote. So whatever they're doing here, it could either be something they do to themselves or they're doing to the people that that they're, you know, again, convincing, you know, that, that people that they need to listen to them or else something bad's gonna happen to them, either cursing or hexing or whatnot. Again, the terminology isn't isn't common and it has uncertain relationships, again, back to Akkadian, but as as Bloch's quote demonstrates, you know, you you can make a make a reasonable case here, you know, for certain practices that that are known especially like the binding of the phylacteries and you know the you know that kind of thing binding something around the head or pulling it over your head you know like a necklace and putting you know wearing it around your neck and your shoulders in the terms of an amulet or a talisman or something like that but whatever whatever it is the effect of it again was to deceive it was to, to again call good evil and evil good to deceive the righteous and and because of that some of these righteous are going to lose their lives and whatever they're doing is somehow benefiting the wicked. Again, it's not good, but it's one of these the, the few sections uh, in the Old Testament where some very you know specific female individuals you know who again claim to be you know tapping into into the other side you know divine revelation uh, where they're actually discussed here. And God is very it's very plain verses nineteen through twenty three. I am opposed. I'm against you. God says. So the bottom line here for Ezekiel twelve and thirteen again, in our episode for today, is that the people of Jerusalem were not being told the truth. And as we transition later in the next episode into chapters 14 and 15, we're going to see that it's not just the people in Jerusalem. It's people that that Ezekiel that are among the exiles right there with, uh, with Ezekiel. They're the ones also trying to sort of cover their own butts in some cases and sort of obscure the truth of what, what's going to happen, what's going on. But the people again, are not being told the truth, they are being deceived, and they're not going to escape. Though the city's preachers, you know, these people doing this are Israelites, in other words, they're, they're elect, okay, they're Israelites, what they're saying is false, and God isn't in it. And I personally, again, I think by, just by way of something worth thinking about, you take a chapter like this, and I think it's good fodder for what we see happening today under the name of Christianity, under the name of Jesus, okay, under the name of, you know, the, the gospel, okay, there are lots of things, and, and again, we, we can make a grocery list of them here on the podcast, I mean, there, but there are a, lo- a number of things that people who name the name of Christ or, or say that they have some, you know, position in ministry or some, you know, spiritual authority, 
you know, in, in, in the Lord's work, doing and saying things that are just flat out lies. Okay, this is a chapter, the, both of these chapters are, indicate that, well, that isn't the first time. And I think what we need to learn from it is that just because people link what they're saying and doing to the gospel, to Jesus, does not mean that it is the gospel or that Jesus is in it. It's very clear here uh, from the Old Testament that people were doing that with the name of the God of Israel, and God says, they have seen nothing. I have not called them. These are lies, and I'm going to put a stop to it. Don't listen to them. So I think this is something that's pretty valuable for us because I've met people. I've met you know, good people, people who really want to do the right thing. And they'll say, well, so-and-so said this, but, but you know, they're a preacher. I mean, I, I, I think I should listen to them. Or they wouldn't you know, lie to me. They wouldn't deceive me. I mean, they, they're, they're speaking for the Lord. You know, they're, they're sincere. Their heart's in it. Well, yeah, well, I, I'm willing to bet that the people back here in Jerusalem were, were, were serious, maybe not in the, in the way you'd want them to be. Maybe they're serious about getting something out of it. Maybe they're serious about uh, you know, saving their own, their own uh, hide. I think there are a lot of people today, and again, we can make the grocery list here, that are doing what they're doing in the name of Christ for personal benefit, building an audience, you know, getting money. I mean, again, this, is, this doesn't take a whole lot of imaginations, but the point is that here we have two chapters here where there's biblical precedent, not only for that sin, and that's what it is, that this is sin, but there's also biblical pref- precedent for people being deceived by it, and we ought to take the lesson. We ought to take heed to what you know we've you know what what we're reading here in these two chapters of Ezekiel. Yeah, Mike. Just like Ezekiel thirteen says twenty one, it says your your veils also I will tear off. That's what we're doing here at the Naked Bible Podcast is taking off veils. Yep, yep. That that is the effort. You know, without going into too many metaphors, that, that that's a good one. Yeah, I thought you know, I, you know. no, no, I. I no, I, 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 if, if, if I'm tracking with you, what I'm thinking of, really what we do here is we want to expose things that aren't true. That's right. That's the tearing off of the veil here. There you go. And we want, we want to direct people's attention to things that are true. And what we do here is I don't, I don't want you to sit here and listen to the podcast and, and just, oh, Mike said it, that, that that's the end of the story. We want to get you into the text and give you the breadcrumb trail with, you know, how, how can you trace these thoughts in the text good sources, again, to read. You know, we're, we're, we're not trying to do anything here that, that requires us to make stuff up and, and get people to follow us blindly. That is just not the point. Yeah, absolutely. We're not adding to or subtracting. It's just it is what it is. And Yeah, yeah. yeah we want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem. There you go. All right, Mike. Well, another good episode. We appreciate it. And next week, we're back into Ezekiel, a couple more chapters, correct? Yep, 14 and 15. Okay. Well, again, I just want to give a shout out to everybody that I met this weekend. I appreciate uh, each and every one of y'all and everybody listening out there. I appreciate y'all. And I just want to thank you for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.